Good morning. Let's pray for the service. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is always with us, that we can look into it and learn so much about you on a daily basis. Father, I pray that as I deliver this sermon, Lord, that your word would speak through me to stir in in the hearts of all of us that we need to contemplate your sufferings on a daily basis. In your name I pray, amen. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan Harris. I've been a member of this church for about 10 years, probably. And me standing in front of you and delivering this sermon today is a result of about six months to maybe a year, somewhere in that time, of Pastor Bill saying, when will you preach? Or will you preach? And when will you preach? And also six months to a year of me saying no and never. And I think he finally got tired of asking. And I went into his office one day to meet with him. And he said, what are you doing on the 5th of December? And I said, I don't think anything right now. He said, you're busy now. (laughs) That's the day that you're going to preach. And he gave me several options to to choose from of a message to preach. Um, He also said, if if there's something else that you want to preach, go for it. But uh, I chose this sermon to preach today out of Isaiah 53, The Suffering Servant. Many of you do know, but some of you may not know, uh, that a few years ago I put my family through a a, a very difficult time due to um, uh, hurts that I did not lay at the foot of the cross, uh, unrepentant sin in my life, which led me to become addicted to narcotics, and I, my, license, my nursing license was suspended. I was charged with four federal felonies, and I spent eight years, I'm sorry, eight, not eight years, <laughs> eight months. Thank God it was not eight years. I spent eight months in federal prison in Colorado. That experience taught me so much more about suffering than I ever could have learned through reading about suffering or contemplating suffering. And so as we look today um, at the suffering of of the servant, um, let's contemplate what does it mean to suffer. So the dictionary.com puts it this way, to undergo, to be subjected to, or endure pain, distress, injury, loss, or anything unpleasant. That explains a lot of things, anything unpleasant. Uh, One definition had the added words patiently or willingly. So to endure pain, distress, injury, loss, or anything unpleasant, patiently or willingly. I really like that. So let's look into Isaiah 53 at the suffering servant. Starting in verse 1, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Verse 2, the quote, the uh, passage there says, grew up before him like a tender shoot, a root out of parched ground. Some of the commentaries that I read and, and the scholars that I studied this believe that the root spoken of there is the line of David from which 
uh, which at this point had fallen into to serious decay. It was a dead root at that point. Um, I think King Herod, who was king of, of Judah at that time, was not even a descendant of, of David, if I have done my research correctly. Um, so the, the line of David had decayed and was, was dead. And yet Jesus would be that restoration of the Davidic kingship. And so we had that to look forward to. And it says he grew up before him, Jehovah, God, rather than before the world. He was, he was seen only by his father and, and those close to him as he grew up. He was not born into nobility. He was not born into, uh, into royalty and did not grow up before the world the way that kings and queens usually do. And so the text that he was, he grew up in, in humble means. Also, a root out of parched ground. So a, a ground that was, that was very poor. And we see this in Luke, Luke's account of the birth of Jesus in chapter 2, verse 7. It says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the practice of wrapping your babies in, in cloths is uh, swaddling is another word for it. We do it to this day. We swaddled all three of our children. I'm sure many of you have swaddled your kids. I like to be swaddled every once in a while. It doesn't happen very often, but it is uh, it's pretty nice. But it says here that she swaddled him. She didn't have servants. She didn't have maids to, to, uh, to attend to him. She did it herself. She was humble. She was of humble means and poor. And then laying him in a manger often gives us the idea that he was born in a, in a barn or a, a stall. But it's interesting, there's actually no other scriptural reference to support that. It's just something that we kind of think, well, he was born in a manger, which is a feeding trough, or he was laid in a manger, so he must have been born in a barn. You know, a lot of nativity scenes actually have little barns made out of little pieces of wood to, to show that. But that does, that's not supported with Scripture. In a Sunday school class that I was attending a few years ago, this issue was brought up, and there was an article, and I couldn't find the article, but um, I do remember pieces of it uh, that, that talked about this specifically. So Luke, when he says, and she laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. So the word that he uses there in the Greek is kataluma, which is translated guest room. So, you know, maybe he used the wrong word. Well, not, not likely because Luke was very fastidious about the words that he used in his gospel. And he uses a different word later in the gospel to describe a different inn. In the, the parable, in his retelling of the parable of the Good Samaritan, it says that he brought, the, the Good Samaritan brought the, the subject of, of the story to the inn and paid the innkeeper. And the, the word that he uses in that telling is pandocleon public lodging place. So I, I, he definitely knew the difference between the two words. 
So this picture of Jesus being born in a barn or a stable might not actually be what we, it might not be true and might be um, just something that we've created. But in the, in the culture of that day, it was common for families to keep their animals in the house with them, hopefully in a different part of the house with many walls and uh, curtains and deodorizers between them and the rest of the house. Um, and, and so when there was no room in the inn, in the guest room of the house, Mary and Joseph, as they were traveling, would have stayed with friends and family along the way. When they reached Bethlehem, they would have stayed with a friend or a family member. But there were so many people in Bethlehem because of the census that the guest room was already taken. So you can sleep in this area with the animals and lay him in the manger. So either way, whether Christ was born in a stable or in a, in a house in and laid in a manger, the text is supported here. He was poor. He was of humble means. He grew up before the Lord and in, in the Lord's eyes only and rather than in the world. Let's continue. And if I can turn my notes here, that would be great. Um, the latter part of verse 2 also says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Paul confirms this point in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, when he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So God, Jesus, humbled himself. He gave up his his divinity and came to earth and was was taking on the the form of a bondservant and the humility of human form. So there's nothing that, that would say, oh, that's the king. That, he's, the, he's the ruler of the world. No, he, he was veiled in human flesh and, and grew up in humble means. So, verse 2 is, is supported by that text as well. Let's continue with verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised, and we did not esteem him. In verse 3, the words despised and forsaken, Isaiah here was speaking to the nation of Israel, how they would not recognize Christ when he came, that they would spit on him in his hour of darkness, that they would choose for a known criminal to go free instead of the one who had committed no sin. But this prophecy also applies to us. It applies to you and me in, and as we are dead in our transgressions, we cannot reach out to Christ. We look on Jesus and we despise him. We, we cannot reach out to him in our fallen state. Paul, again, this time from his second letter to the Corinthians, 
speaks to this truth in chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. It's so important to note there that Paul does not say that we reconciled ourselves to God or we reconciled to God through Jesus. Rather, the exact opposite. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He is the one who reached out to us. Because when you despise and are... When you dis- despise someone and want to forsake them, you cannot be reconciled to them in, in and of yourselves, in and of ourselves. We cannot reconcile ourselves to Christ because of our despising and our forsaking of him. As, as Isaiah 53 says, he was despised and we did not esteem him. As we continue through the next part of the passage of Isaiah 53, let's keep in mind the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, and we'll see how many of these prophecies were fulfilled in just a few short hours after the Last Supper. So I have counted seven. Maybe you and I can confer after the service, and uh, you maybe get a different number. I might have missed one. I might have counted one that wasn't really there, but uh, we'll take a look at starting in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And the word that Isaiah uses in verse 6 from the Hebrew is avon. The word for iniquity is avon and literally means perversity, evil, fault or sin. But the Lord has caused the perversity, the evil, the fault, the sin of all of us to fall on him. If, if you're here today and you think that, well, I've never committed iniquity. No, maybe not. But have you committed perversity? Have you committed fault? I committed fault like three times before I got out of bed this morning. Um, have you committed sin? The, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 states this way, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm going to read that again because it's so important. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So not only did Christ 
take our sin and become sin for us. But in that transaction, we become the righteousness of God. Not righteousness that is gained through doing the right things and following all of the speed limits and, um, you know, cooking meals at the right time and saying the right word to every member of my family at the right time. No, that, that righteousness is seriously lacking compared to God's righteousness. And God's righteousness is what we gain in the transfer when Christ took on our sins. Let's continue. Verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Again in verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. My dad had a, a favorite joke that he liked to tell around Good Friday and Easter every year. So as Joseph of Arimathea was the, the rich man who donated his tomb for Christ to be entombed in. And as they're laying him in the tomb, all of Joseph's friends are saying, what are you doing? You've, you've bought and paid for this tomb. Why are you giving it to this, this poor man? Not this, this poor man, but this poor man. Why are you letting him use your family tomb? And Joseph looks at them and he says, don't worry, guys, it's just for the weekend. And we'll continue in verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. The word offspring in verse 10 in the, word, in the Hebrew is the word zerah, which is plant, fruit, or seed. So in, in the garden, or after the, the Last Supper, as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. So he's referring here to us being the, the offspring. So my father is dead. He passed away in 2008. He doesn't see his offspring anymore. He doesn't see me. He doesn't see my sister. He doesn't see his grandchildren. Yet, the promise here is that he will see his offspring. Christ will see his offspring. So he has to rise from the dead to see his offspring. And then his offspring is anyone that comes after him, that believes in him. John 1, 12 through 13 states very clearly, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born not out of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's you. That's me. If you are here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are named in Isaiah's prophecy in 53. 
that Christ will see his offspring. We are his offspring. And he sees us every day. Let's continue in the last part of verse 10. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. So earlier in Philippians, I stopped at verse 8, and I want to continue in verse 9 because it coincides so well with the end of chapter 53 and actually the end of chapter 52. So Philippians 2, 9 through 11, For this reason also God highly exalted him and gave him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can I get an amen? So because of his humility and his willingness to be the perfect sacrifice for our iniquities, God exalted him. But he didn't just stop there. He gave him the highest name, the name that will make every knee bow, the name that will make every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this exalted servant can also be seen at the end of Isaiah 52, which then leads into the passage we're studying today, the suffering servant. Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15 reads, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. This is what we have to look forward to in the coming kingdom of Christ. To see the exalted servant, Christ, being bowed to by every knee and hearing every tongue confess that he is Lord of all. So you may be asking yourself, why did he choose to preach this message at this time of year. It's more of a, a Good Friday rather than, a, than an Advent sermon. And I was thinking about my sufferings. And when I am lamenting my own predicament, when I am thinking about my own sufferings, which are almost always the result of my own sin, whether I'm suffering through sitting in jail for a weekend and then eight months in prison, or whether I'm suffering through getting an earful for leaving the cupboard doors open again. That's a real thing that happens in our house on a consistent basis. You're getting better. Oh, good. God's work in my life, right? Um, it's because of my own sin. Almost all human suffering is the result of our own sin. 
Now, there are a few of you who suffer from very, phys- very difficult physical, emotional, and mental disease, and that is not the result of your own sin. But they are consequences more broadly of the fall. Um, but you, you bear it willingly and patiently, and I thank, God, I thank you for your godly example to us. But most, almost all of our suffering is the result of our own sin. Christ's suffering also is the result of human sin, but not his own. His suffering is the result of the sins of the entire world. The suffering of Christ is also the standard against which all other suffering is compared. When someone uses the term excruciating, whether they realize it or not, they are comparing their experience to that of the cross. Ex in Latin can be used to mean out of or from, and the term crux from Latin is for cross, from the Latin for cross. So when someone says excruciating pain, it was pain from the cross. They're, they're saying, my pain was from the cross. So you may want to challenge them and say, when they use the term, I was excruciating pain, say, was it really though? Was it? Maybe not. I, not a good way to make or keep friends. (laughs) Christ's suffering also takes away from us the ultimate suffering that we should experience. His sacrifice on the cross allows us to be rejoined in relationship with him, thereby eliminating the suffering of the separation from God that we would experience as a result of our sin. There's never a wrong time to contemplate the suffering of Christ. We as followers of Christ are to follow his precedent in suffering with patience and willingness. In our Western developed world, we become accustomed to the idea that we shouldn't have to suffer for any reason. Millions of products and services are bought and sold every day with the sole purpose of increasing comfort and eliminating or or decreasing our suffering. Now, I'm not saying that, that we need to not engage and not buy those products and those services. I, I'm just say, simply saying that we need to rid ourselves of the idea that we shouldn't have to suffer for any reason. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, again, have this attitude in, yourself, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We need to have the attitude that Christ had, that we need to be humble and willing and patiently endure sufferings. And my final reason for choosing this passage is that when we're looking at the birth of Jesus, if we do not see the cross laying before him at the time of his birth, we miss the entire reason for the joy that we celebrate at Christ's first advent. If we focus solely on the gift that was given, we'll miss the purpose for which it was given. It's impossible to separate Sorry, to celebrate 
only the birth of Christ without acknowledging the death and suffering of Christ. To celebrate the birth of Christ is to celebrate the death of Christ. The two are inseparable. Father, thank you for sending your Son to be the total payment for our sin, our iniquity, our falsehood. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to go to the cross and suffer on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to a right relationship with you and receive your righteousness in exchange for our sin. As we continue through the Advent season, help us, Lord, to proclaim not only your birth, but also your death and resurrection. Amen.